Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Clinical trials in rare disease have the potential to make an enormous difference to the outcome for patients, especially when the trial design takes into account the realities for those participants and the outcome measures focus on things that really matter to that patient group. Shazia Ahmed spends her time thinking about all of these issues in her work in clinical trials. It was an honor to spend time with Shazia Ahmed in this week's episode of the Health Design Podcast. Shazia Ahmed, you're absolutely welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Your interest is in clinical trials and in clinical trials in rare conditions in particular. But before we explore that aspect, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you start on this path? First of all, thank you for having me today. Really appreciate the opportunity to join one of your sessions. I was involved in research in particular early on during my summers at the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and working alongside different mentors, involved in clinical research, working closely with patients, but the families, the caregivers, the care partners on rare disease programs across many different institutes that included the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, NINDS, as well as NIAD, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. I had that opportunity to work very closely with families and that impact of research giving hope to patients really empowered me to go that path. So I stayed on at the NIH early on in my career as a research coordinator and really was just very, I found research to be my, my path that I loved. Can you remember any participant in the clinical trial that you were involved with that really made your day when you were working at that time? It was most definitely, I was working on a program, NIAID, NIAID, and it was for Epstein-Barr virus. And Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, under my mentor, late Dr. Strauss, Dr. Fauci actually was ahead of NIAID at that time too. And it, it was just so powerful because this patient had traveled with their family from a long distance to get the care that they needed to help get the treatment and the impact that the whole care team had on the patient that really impacted me because it was not just the physician, it was the involvement of the study coordinator, the research nurse, the entire care team beyond the study physician that really made an impact on the patient and the family and making sure that all touch points we understood. And it made a difference for the patient because Epstein-Barr virus has so many different implications. There's a neuro neurological implications. And that really, it, it was early on in my career and that really touched on me on how much different stakeholders can have on the patient and the family. Give us a, more of a, an insight into that. What kind of difference do you think it made? What were the interactions that you felt really made a difference to that patient? I think it was really watching how the physician, the research physician interacted 
with the family about the clinical trial and really reviewed the informed consent with the research coordinator, the research nurse as well, alongside the family. That that was really, it was just such a powerful way to show me as, you know, early on in my career, how research is really done. But when communication with the patient, but also the family is done the right way, it really instills not just hope in the, in the patient, but the comfort level that you need for anybody that is participating in a clinical trial. And that was key. And that to this day, I take that learning um, around communication and how we can make them better for patient um, participants to participate by engaging them and using the right language and really creating that comfort level. Your interest in clinical trials then is particularly in rare conditions. And that was driven home for you by a personal experience. Tell us about that. When my family were in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where my husband was doing his residency training and I was working as the research coordinator, my daughter, age three at the time, was diagnosed with Kawasaki disease. And Kawasaki disease is a very, very rare condition. And if not treated in time, it can manifest to different systems in the body, especially the heart, and cause aneurysms. And we were lucky because she was diagnosed in time. And I um, attribute that a lot to mother's instinct, taking out my husband's textbook, probably I did. And looking, I mean, it was classic, classic manifestation of the Kawasaki. Tongue was red, strawberry tongue, and the swelling and everything. But anyway, because we were near, lucky to be near a teaching hospital because my husband was doing his residency training there. We were able to get the diagnosis in time, although she was still in probably phase two of the disease. And that was so critical because if she did not get the diagnosis in time and start the necessary IVIG treatment, it would have manifested and caused it, caused implications. But because that rare, rare condition was diagnosed in time. She has no issues to this day, is thriving, second year student in college, and we were lucky. But there are many, many rare diseases that don't even, I mean, the diagnostic odyssey takes years, almost up to five years for some diseases. And for many, 90%, I would probably say, there are no treatments. So that really manifested with me if I was to continue my career in healthcare and in therapeutic development, that I would always leverage that experience, but ensure that patient advocacy groups were always involved in any program that I would implement or support in healthcare, because the patient advocacy really played a key role in the next few years for me after that experience and just understanding things to keep an eye for and just also being a resource for other parents that may have that experience. I can see how that resonates with you. And first of all, we're absolutely delighted that your daughter is doing well. You're quite right. If Kawasaki's is not diagnosed in time, it can manifest with many long-term 
sequelae, including, as you say, cardiac aneurysms and other things. Mm -hmm. So that was fabulous from your perspective. Now, as somebody who's working in clinical trials and appreciating how challenging this is, the fact that you've had this experience is wonderful. But what about somebody who hasn't had this experience? How do you bring them on board with the culture that requires really quite deep connection with that particular family? For any program that I implement, in my current role, I ensure that we engage with the patient advocacy group for that particular disease or indication early on. And early on, meaning if our group is involved with supporting the clinical operations team in any kind of protocol feasibility, site feasibility, we ensure that the entire team is engaged, empowered to really understand that patient journey, the, not just the patient journey, but the caregiver and care partner for that specific disease or indication. And that's really important for us to develop the right strategies to support a therapeutic program with a particular sponsor. And that's been really important. And that's what really drives to a successful program and really resonates with the entire team because there are things that you don't think about that you really think about when you actually talk to the real patient that's been through that already. That makes sense at so many levels. So what you're talking about is translating the patient's experience so that the clinicians are so attuned to what that experience is that when they're interacting with that patient, it feels almost like you're talking to a member of your family, you're talking to somebody who really understands what's going on with you. Give us an example of a trial that you've participated in where this has worked so well. I'll take lupus, for example, lupus nephritis. In really talking to the patient community, you learn about factors that you really have not thought about without talking to that team, encompassing the patient, patient, patient advocate, the parent, even the caregiver, because you could develop outcomes that would not have been measured or part of the protocol that mattered to the patient. And it could be simple things like, you know, getting ready in the morning, how long that takes, or, you know, having that feeling of having a flare and not wanting to go outside. Just simple real world evidence that's gathered about the patient is so critical. And that, that has helped us on one recent program to really implement strategies to really engage with patients better and even develop communication strategies that will really help us develop materials that will really resonate with patients and want to participate in the registry or study. I can see how that works. In brass tax terms, how do you achieve this? Do you engage with the advocates? Do you engage directly with the patients as the coordinator of the trial? How do you achieve that intel? And then how do you relay that to your clinical team? It's done different ways. It depends on where the relationships are. Usually it's with the patient advocacy group or it's with the patient advocate that we have a specific relationship with. And it's very one-on-one -on -one and we do it different ways. Sometimes we are able to, and this is of course, if the patient is willing to do this during the pandemic, of course, we get on a Zoom call and we just 
we, we just learn about the patient. We just want to know their day-to-day. And of course, you can often find videos on YouTube about different disease indications, but it's really not the same until you connect directly with the patient and your study team is there and they really hear the voice of the patient and what their day-to-day is and what they have to go through, what would help them if they were to participate in a program, what are some necessary things to think about to engage with the patient to, and ensure that we have the right retention strategies in place. So that's been really important. And I, I really strive to do that on every program, especially on rare disease programs, because there's a deeper understanding that you really need to drive and empower the entire team. And it really resonates when you hear it truly from the voice of the patient. Okay, let's drill down even further. Give us an example of something that the clinical team could never have anticipated without that direct connection with a patient advocate, which led them to behave quite differently in that setting. There was a program that I worked on, and it required a certain number of study visits. And it was very aggressive, Moyes. It required patients to come in at least every two weeks. And we integrated, and this is very early on in my role, UBC, we integrated a concierge service and many sponsors are now doing this, but it just was so important to be able to help ease the burden at the site level, but most importantly for the patient and the caregiver to get to and from the site because they just couldn't deal with it. But then to add to that, we added nursing, home nursing support, where the nurses could go to the patient's home and provide the necessary outcomes necessary to, you know, collection of blood, whatever it was for that particular protocol. And the patient didn't have to go to the site. And the site was, you know, this was for a rare disease study. And it was almost probably 100 miles of travel. And that was too much, too burdensome. So we made it easier for the patient to participate. And even better now on some of our programs, what's been really phenomenal is this new approach of decentralized trials, which they were happening pre-pandemic. But I think because of COVID, we saw even more DCT, the decentralized approach to clinical trials across many therapeutic areas. But because of technological solutions, we've been able to integrate even better solutions for patients to participate. And that's just been remarkable. And even if it's a hybrid approach, like in the study that I did, I think it just makes a huge difference. And it just makes it easier for the patient. Let's pivot a little bit now and say, what does a day in Shazia's life look like? What's a typical day for you? It's actually been very busy during the pandemic. We've had trials still going on. We, we have a lot of things happening in the clinical trial arena. And my day is very much involved in spearheading uh, programs that support recruitment, retention, engagement for not just rare disease programs, but any program that we support here at UBC. And I'm very much involved in 
in the strategy and making sure that we are successfully meeting the needs of our sponsors, but also that our sites have all the support that they need to successfully engage with patients and and meet the needs for that particular protocol. What are some of those challenges that you face, particularly in the light of the pandemic? Because we imagine that life must be quite challenging for you just now. That, that's a great question. It's, it's, there's a lot of challenges, especially on the rare disease programs in identifying potential participants for a particular study because many patients, you know, the, the, the distance could be very large. So I, I think what's been remarkable, again, is overcoming those challenges by integrating solutions like decentralized trials to ensure that we not only have access for patients to be able to participate in those trials and be at home. I think that's been just phenomenal. But also the biggest challenge right now that I face on all of my trials is the lack of diversity. And that's been an ask, um, a major ask among sponsors, but most importantly, the FDA has really recently even what they are encouraging more and more sponsors to really look at the data and ensure future trials that they may be doing ensure that there's an enriched and diverse population. And I think with the way that we're going, I mean, I'm really excited about this with integrating more decentralized trials, even if it's hybrid, that we can really meet the goals to achieve that. Because when you have a more diverse participation and access for patients that would have never thought to participate, patients that are in rural areas and underserved communities, they will have better access to clinical trials, but probably even better healthcare options. And that's what I really get excited about every day and being able to do that. I can see why you might be excited about that, because you are really talking about making a difference to real people, which is in the end what clinical trials should be aiming to achieve. So you have the double challenge here. Not only are you dealing in many cases with a rare condition, but you're dealing with a population that doesn't generally participate in clinical trials. So you not only are you getting representatives of that particular condition, but representatives of that condition in a particular community, which is even rarer in some ways. How do you overcome that? It might be backwards where the patients are asking to participate in a potential trial instead of the sites finding the patient. So I think that just could be amazing where we are then bringing the possible option to the patient and they're asking for it. That, that would be just amazing for every patient to have that option. You're right. And I think that really leads to the heart of where healthcare is going. Healthcare is now being driven by patients, not by the, the work, the industry that is healthcare. It's the other way around because patients are now more empowered, more connected, asking more off the healthcare system and looking for solutions in themselves. And I guess that's a key message for this podcast and for many other podcasts that we've done, that the patient voice is getting louder. And the sooner we see it as a partnership between us, the healthcare provider, the trial provider, and the patient, the sooner we will get to much better solutions. Is that how you see it? 
Exactly, exactly. And I think this is also going to just improve even the diagnostic odyssey for even rare diseases where that education awareness will even get out there faster too, which is there's an incredible need for, you know, improved diagnostic odyssey for rare diseases. Tracy, where do you see yourself in the next five years? This is a question you're often asked uh, by interviewers. Where to next for you? In the next five years or even five to 10 years, I really, I see myself really, I see clinical trials really becoming a care option for patients. And I probably honed in on this a lot in our discussion today. But I really, I, you know, worked so much over the last 15 years in patient recruitment, retention. But I do see a shift where a lot of our work in patient engagement and communication and awareness for clinical trials is going to be so dependent on providing more education about diseases and prevention and awareness and driving those patients that have an interest to participate in a clinical trial as a healthcare option because it provides potential treatments that could be life-saving for some patients, especially rare diseases, where they wouldn't have an opportunity otherwise. So I really, I'm excited about that. And I really hope to be, to bring that more to more and more patients as we continue to um, support other programs. But I think that's, that's where I see myself going. I asked that difficult question deliberately because often we say that we don't employ people to be technicians or bureaucrats. We employ them to solve problems. And you're clearly thinking like a problem solver and clearly will add enormous value to wherever you go next. Where do you think that might be? I see myself going in the direction of really bringing or bridging more patient advocacy relationships to sponsors. I think it's not being it's being done, Moyes, but I think there's a lot more to do. And I would love to be the connector to bridge patient advocacy with sponsor to ensure that all sponsors really think about the patient journey and really map that journey into any program that they are incorporating. And even for digital solutions or technology, technological solutions, I think that's really important as well, because there's so much that's coming in the next five. I mean, we've seen that during COVID. And there's so many companies that still are lacking bringing the patient or user experience to the platforms that they develop. So I really see myself being that force to drive that. Shazi Ahmed, you are clearly a problem solver. You're a creative problem solver and a huge credit to the organization that employs you and making a big difference to the world of clinical trials and all things rare disease. It's been a joy speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.